I've had a day today. A day? A day. It's been a day. What a day. Like, I have this really busy week this week because I'm taking my first vacation in over a year next week. Very excited for it. But like before I go, I have like extra, I have an extra week's worth of stuff to do before I go. That way it's, you know, it of can course, be fine. yeah. You know, you were trying to do a lot of work on the podcast so that hopefully the listeners don't notice a difference. Thank yep. you for that, by the way. But in the middle of my day today, in the middle of my busy week before my vacation, Disney has the audacity to say, here's a 45 minute video detailing all of the cool stuff that's going to be on our biggest ever brand new cruise ship that sets sail next year. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. I saw that on Instagram today and it's got like the the Star Wars lounge. Kelly, how am I supposed to work (laughs) when before lunchtime even I find out that a year from now I can be sitting on a starship going through hyperspace drinking fancy cocktails over Coruscant? How? Or how can or I work? eating with Elsa and Anna in Arendelle? Or eating with Elsa and Anna. Frozen. Air- oh, <laughs> <sighs> they have a water slide on the top deck. Okay, with like actual theme park projection mapping and like. Are you like, serious? Show ride show elements. I it. only saw clips, so like this. It's what? insane. It's insane. I've also I've never been on a cruise before in my entire life. I don't we, know what it's like. <laughs> I'll give you a call when they open bookings because we might have to change that. <laughs> no, like seriously, vacation. Like, I don't know. I don't think I said this at the time, but like when we were in Disney World together, like that was one yeah. of my best trips ever. That was one of my favorite trips ever. Aww. I love vacationing with you. You are a fantastic <laughs> travel partner. Thank you. Your husband, eh, he's all right, but you're great. <laughs> I know. I'm wonderful. I plan everything ahead. I have already memorized the maps of everything because maps and menus of almost every place that we go to. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's uh, and 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 oh, Hubby's just along for the ride. <laughs> I'm going to butcher the pronunciation and I'm so sorry. But Chef Arnaud Lamont. OK, he's like a Michelin rated three star chef Ooh. has a brand new restaurant on the ship. What? Yeah. And it's themed after Lumiere. OK, that's amazing. That's like, so I have eaten at one restaurant that was like, that was Michelin star rated Mm -hmm. in my lifetime. And it was in a train station in Paris and best meal of my life. I still think about that meal, like consistently have an album on my phone of just pictures of that one, like that one three course meal and look at those photos on a consistent basis because God, French food is delicious. I've eaten at one of his restaurants before. And yes, it was the best meal I've ever had. Um, my, my one standout memory from the experience is it was, um, it was a seven course meal. And before, before the first course, you had me at seven courses. (laughs) Oh yeah. Um, the, you know, they, they had the chef's specialty aperitif cocktail. Ooh. And then the sommelier comes over and he's going through like the different wine selections with us. And while the sommelier is going through the wine selection, uh-huh. the server comes over because the chef cooked up a special surprise for before the meal even begins. It, <laughs> okay. it was a single spoon on a plate. And on this spoon was like this little ball, like munchkin size. Of it uh-huh. just looked like fried stuff. Yeah. And the server explained it was fried tomato soup. What? Right. Fried tomato soup. And he said, please do not eat it. It is too hot. And so the sommelier continues going through the wine selection. And, you know, when he gets to the end and we make the decision, he says, 
you know, very good. I'll be right back. By the way, your tomato soup is ready to eat. Please eat it in one bite. Like it was timed perfectly. That is like, and Kelly, when I tell you, I put this little ball of fried tomato soup in my mouth and it was a grilled cheese and tomato soup sandwich in a munchkin and the soup was warm. I don't understand how. Oh my God. My mouth is watering. How do you fry a liquid? My mouth is watering. That sounds, oh my God. Oh my God. So we'll be going on vacation together in a year. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you had me at seven courses, Golden. Water. Earth. Fire. Air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Hello and welcome to The Pie Show. I'm your host, Kelly. And I'm Colton. And this week we are talking about season two, well... Book two, chapter nine, Bitter Work. It's a really different title. There's no article. There's like, normally it's about like the titles are a thing. Yeah. I genuinely did not remember what this episode was about from the episode title. I mean, I mean, I, I had one of the two plots, mm-hmm. but I also completely blanked on the fact that this is one of my favorite episodes of the entire series. <laughs> And I think that speaks to the speed at which I at which I binged book two the first time. So many of my favorite scenes from the entire show are in this one episode. And I, number one, forgot they were all in the same episode. And number two, forgot it was this one. I like I'm just flashing back to when you were like, eh, season two, kind of a slog. And like the past few episodes, you've been like, well, this is my favorite quote. And this is my favorite this. And this is my favorite this. And I'm like. Colton, the beauty of book two. (laughs) Yeah, I think when I was thinking of book two in general, I was more just thinking about like specific parts of book two Mm -hmm. and glossing over literally like when I think of the show in the abstract, there is an 80% chance that I'm thinking about something from this episode. (laughs) It's about Sokka, right? Oh, oh, yeah. Uh Uh-huh. There's nothing (laughs) quite like Sokka in the money pit. I want to go back to the title for a second because I realized something. So we've heard the phrase bitter work before. Have we? Yes. We've heard it from Roku about describing what it's like to uh, learn all four elements. He describes it as bitter work. Ooh, I like that. That is good. Yeah. I think especially knowing what we know about Roku and his relationship with both Aang and Zuko, I think it's a really fitting title for this episode. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So what's this episode about, Colton? Well, let me tell you. (laughs) When Aang struggles with a block while trying to learn earthbending from Toph, he wonders if the problem is with him or his teacher. That's a, I, I take issue with this summary. Me too. Ang doesn't at no point wonders if Toph is the problem. He like a little bit he does. It's more it's more Katara who wonders if Toph is the problem. Yeah, than I Aang. feel like so I, I know you have your your idea and I'm falling in love with it. 
that like Katara is the one telling the story. Mm-hmm. But I think Katara is the one writing these summaries. <laughs> Especially this one. Yes, if we're seeing this from Katara's perspective, this is very... I wonder what's going to happen to the tone of the Netflix summary when the show and therefore Katara move to Paramount+. Plus. Mm, Yeah. And actually, that'll be really interesting when the show does move, if they change what the summaries are. I had not thought about that. We're going to have to do a follow-up episode in like a year on the entire series. Well, it's curious because I remember when I was like binge watching this in college and stuff, like for my rewatches through college... It was only on Amazon Prime. It wasn't on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Um, Netflix is a really newer, ad- it's a newer edition. Um, but I watched it all on Prime. And so kind of curious, like if I went to Prime now and looked up, it's not on Prime, but like the ones that you like buy or anything like that. I think I actually bought the finale because it was like it had just gone off Prime when I was doing my rewatch. And I was like, Screw you, I'm finishing this again for the millionth time. <laughs> Just bought it out of spite. I think I have a few like a few specific episodes that I bought on Am- on Amazon to be able to stream because again, I have my rewatch favorites and I was consistently watching them. So you bought them on Amazon, you didn't go buying them on iTunes back in the day? No. Mm. No. I have a couple movies I bought on iTunes and like I'm obsessively moving them from computer to computer so I don't lose mm. them kind of thing. My only things that were on iTunes were like free codes for movies on iTunes. So I had there were two. I had Twilight because it had it came with a free code from the DVD. And I had the PBS Six Hour Pride and Prejudice because that was free on iTunes as that well. Is so you. And so what other options would I need <laughs> as like a tween to be able to watch? What other options are there, Colton? Like there weren't any for uh, me. Well, let me tell you, there are three random episodes of the hit sci-fi TV show Warehouse 13. And there's oh all God. of season one of Stargate Atlantis. <laughs> Because that's my iTunes collection. <laughs> These are like the deep archives of us that oh, yeah. I think say a lot about who we are. New podcast spinoff idea. <laughs> deep diving into each other's iTunes libraries. Oh no. Oh no. <laughs> I have the Chipmunk World Adventure <laughs> soundtrack. Yeah. Okay. I had no longer have any interest in this project. <laughs> <laughs> I loved that movie as a kid. <laughs> it's fine. Getting back to the recap. <laughs> there's a lot back. of a uh, Toph's sacrifice. Or I don't I saw the starts of Toffee Katara and their differences. I saw a little bit of that, but I mostly saw it like the frustration that Toph is walking into the situation with of like, you know, giving up your entire life. Mm. Even if that life is, you know, not great still. It's, it's, it's Walking away from stuff. It's interesting because I saw it more as her walking into something as opposed to walking away from something. Mm. Like she's walking in head first into something of like, this is what I'm going to do. And Katara was already like, because they show her and Katara butting heads on how they do things. Mm-hmm. And I saw that kind of set up with this recap. Mm. And a two-second random Azula at the end who proceeded to not be in the entirety of this episode. (laughs) Two-second Azula. (laughs) Let's move on from that just as fast as they did. The music was interesting. Yes. So, like, it starts out with that 
Fire Nation theme, like the first couple mm-hmm. intervals, mm-hmm. but then, and I'm sorry to the people who know more about music than I do if I get this wrong, it sounds like it goes to like a major version. Like, like in it, verses. It, yeah. Yeah. It's upside down. It is upside down. That is the best way to describe it for it's everyone, upside down, music and people it's and like non-music people. Kind of hopeful and kind of quasi-heroic. Yeah. Yeah. But still not sure and a little foreboding. Mm-hmm. It's like forebodingly mm-hmm. heroic. Yeah. It sounds, I feel like the last time we may have heard something like this, maybe it was Omashu. Mm. That's, yeah. that's where I'm like trying to pick it up. I think, I think maybe it sounds similar to things we've heard in Omashu. Um, maybe specifically the episode in which he goes back, in which Aang goes back to find Bumi to be his teacher. So maybe I have to go back and watch last listen to that for. So maybe those it's less Fire Nation and more like this is an earth bending master. Motif. Maybe. Yeah. We'll have to keep our ears open to see if we hear it again in future episodes or in future moments. Yeah. Listeners, let us know what you think about the opening music to this episode because it's it's a different one. It's different. And I just I really love this about book two that like maybe like I don't know if we just didn't notice it in book one or if it was the same every time. Like, am I? I I've gone to like do some spot looks and nothing really super crazy stands out that I've happened into. I haven't been like super thorough about making yeah, sure that no. I go listen to every episode, but yeah, it it I think book two they just you know they started had to more play fun around with it. Yeah, the more. track team yeah. had a better grasp on you know well, th- the different themes they had to play with, and mm-hmm. maybe the writers had more of a grasp on the overall direction of the show. Well, I think also when you're establishing the first season of something and they didn't know if they were going to get a second season, you want to have some consistency mm-hmm. and kind of create, you hear this noise, you know you're getting a good show. Like You hear this noise, you're getting the show. You hear this noise, you're getting the, the Pavlovian response in a yeah. way. Um, and especially with kids, because if a kid hears the music when it's, you know, when they're skipping through the channels type of thing, when parents, is, they, the kid's going to say, I want to watch that because it, it draws their attention. Yeah, yeah. So. And there really were only like a small handful of, of different openings, opening stingers in season one. Like there's, you know, the big, we're under a lot of tension and stress and, you know, we need to mm-hmm. get a move on. And curiously enough, those were the episodes where you were like, we're on a timeline, people. <laughs> we haven't talked about that timeline in quite a bit. Yeah, we haven't. Um, we are on a timeline. We are. Very Summer's much coming. so. I felt that a lot this episode. Like, personally, I felt that as a rewatcher. Like, mm, we're on a timeline here. And it, I think that may color some of my opinions on who I think is right, what is the right way for things, and stuff like that. Because I'm like, there's a deadline, people. Like, l- a literal deadline. <laughs> That's dark. So, it's... Yeah, it's dark, but it's powerful. It get, it's a motivator. It gets a move on, as as my mother says, get a move on. But that 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 is what I noticed maybe coloring my opinions. So I'll keep that in mind because I think we're gonna argue a bit about some of the stuff in this episode. Because like, okay, this episode feels like really like my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The whole episode is just like, okay, here we're going to dig into the bending philosophies. Yeah. And like, what's behind all of this? Yeah. It's a very you episode. Yeah. It might be why I, I don't know. I found it. I found it a frustrating episode for me. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I'll talk about this more. I found myself siding very much with Toph on a lot, if not all of the things 
Um, and I think that's where I found it kind of frustrating in a way. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that more when we talk about her training a bit more, but it's why in my memory, I find this more of a frustrating episode and why I remember more of Sokka stuck in the rock. I find that in my memory of this episode, curiously enough, I think of the two different plots as they're each their own episode. Mm in my head and mm-hmm. I didn't even realize until I was watching so I was like oh right both of these things are going on at the same time I forgot that happened which I think you know we can talk about it more later but like it's kind of the same both plots are kind of the same story in a way mm-hmm. um, in a really masterful way I think but yeah they're just so the line in my head between the two was so strong before and I think after this watch through it's not so much let's get into some of it <laughs> some things we agree on or you know can see each other's points of view and i think some of the transition stuff especially with iroh and toff's scenes before we get into each of those the transitions between them are really interesting and i noticed a lot of the music in those oh there's this really interesting when they move to uh the lu 10 flashback Mm-hmm. It's it sounded very different than all the music we've heard before. It was almost choral music and ethereal. It's interesting you say that and that you picked up on that because it didn't jump out to me. Really? Yeah, and I think it's because I I took it very on its face as this is a this is a signal to the audience that we're not in reality right now. We're in a mm-hmm. sort of heightened state. It's, you know, it's a dream sequence or a flashback or something. Like yeah. this is not our story as it stands in the it moment felt in the very present. dreamy. Yeah. Um I I actually, in an interesting twist, I feel like we're backwards this week because I was picking up on the colors of that <laughs> sequence. <laughs> You were picking up on the music. I was picking up on the colors. Mm-hmm. What is wrong with the world? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's it's because both elements, aha, uh-huh, both elements seek to communicate to the audience that you know this is this is like a little capsule, a bottle, mm-hmm. separate from reality as we know it. It felt very out of time, out of place, and yet so in place. Yeah. Um, and to realize that when Ira wakes up and, you know, is woken up to a shift in color and a shift in music, that that's his dream. Like, that's that's where he was for a bit. I almost I almost start to wonder, like, was he dying? Like, was he like he got hit pretty hard? That's like kind how, of like, the impression I, that you're left with. Like, was he real close there? Like, yeah, because in, in the dream sequence, like, you know, a lot of. A lot of other franchises, you know, in visual media, when you do a dream sequence, everything is almost super saturated and like super mm-hmm. heightened. And that's not what we get. What we get is very desaturated, almost like watercolor effects yeah. on everything. Kind of reminiscent of some of like the historic flashbacks that we've gotten before. Yeah. And I think maybe also with like the elements of like the choral music, mm-hmm. it's, you know, angels singing type of thing you know yeah what I you mean? hear it as like heavenly and i'll be honest so part of the reason i was paying attention to the music so much is because i was like oh this is lutan this is lutan's grave i wonder if we're going to get hints of a very particular sad song from later on in this in this flash i wasn't even thinking that far ahead so i was heavily listening to like i went back rewatched the whole scene like just like closed my eyes type of thing 
and there isn't any. So you're safe. You're safe. If you're thinking about that, you're safe from leaves from the vine. Um, <laughs> but uh, you're not safe when you're listening to this podcast because I am cruel. <laughs> when you're listening to this podcast, you're not safe. He's so cruel. Um, but I was trying to listen for it because I was curious if it comes up earlier. Um, and it's not there, but to hear this like ethereal choral music, it does make me question like, was it touch and go there for a second? I know Toph says that like, Toph makes a comment in the previous episode that he he's going to be okay. Like it's, it's, it's close though. I'm pretty sure. Um, and so we really start to, it, it's making me start to wonder how close it was for Iroh. Yeah, I think it was pretty close. Well, also... Which side does he get struck on? Because he makes a point in his teachings to say you don't want to get hit with lightning in the heart. Doesn't he get struck? I'm pretty sure he gets struck on his left. The heart. Yeah. 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 The heart side. Yeah. So this is all really relevant information for him. Ooh, that just brought a new that just brought a new perspective to me of all of Iroh's training of Zuko. I need to teach you this because I know this, and even then I almost died. Let's talk Toph, Colton. Let's talk Toph teaching. You always Toph talk. I do. I very much do. That is my style. And again, maybe that just colors my perspective of her way of training and her way of teaching. Yeah, I'm surprised that, that you open up this whole discussion by by saying, you know, that you very much take Toph's side in everything. Mm -hmm. Because for like so much of our conversation about Avatar, you have been such an ardent supporter of Katara in basically oh, yeah, everything yeah. she has done the entire time. Yeah. And now you're like, Katara? No, never heard of her. <laughs> I mean, I love Katara. And this I think this is always tricky when you have two female characters on on screen, of course, like you know, people are going to pit them against each other. So this is not, this is not technically Toph v. Katara. They are two individual people who have very different ways about going about life. And it doesn't matter their gender on here. They would have butted heads no matter what. Oh, yeah. And and I don't mean to suggest that, you know, you need oh, yeah, to pick no. one or the other. I just, you know, the fact that you are picking one over the other is strange to me. It, yeah, it is. It is a little strange. But I, when looking at the two of their philosophies for this situation, mm -hmm. I find myself siding with Toph. She is the expert matter person on earthbending. She has been brought in to teach earthbending and Aang is avoiding learning the lesson. He's doing everything to avoid learning the lesson. And she's throwing everything she can at him of like, you cannot avoid this. And that is the lesson. Yeah, that is the lesson. And I think when the lesson is you need to be you need to be the rock back. Like you need to be stubborn on this. I think there is no way to sugarcoat it. There is no way to, because I think it would just be enabling Aang. And I find, I, you know, I find, I, I, I want to talk about this because I find one of my bigger issues is that Katara second guesses Toph's teaching methods in front of Aang and undermines her. You don't see Toph interrupting Katara's teaching of Aang and saying, no, that's not the way to teach him. They're two very different styles. Waterbending is going to be very different from earthbending. And it almost feels like, I'm like, Katara, where was that girl at the North Pole 
throwing ice discs at that dude. Where is that girl? Because that's the girl that can kind of tap into what Toph is saying, that no, I will not be moved. And I I just, again, calling her out in front of Aang, if she had, again, done something to the side, and so like, you know, taken her aside and done a one-on-one conversation about it, it'd be very different than enabling Aang to continue to ignore the lesson that Toph is trying to teach and saying, it's okay, Aang, you don't have to, you don't have to. There is a deadline. Toph doesn't even know there's a deadline. She's just trying to teach him earthbending. She has no idea about the Fire Nation, like any of the stuff that's coming their way besides the stuff she's experienced in the chase. And so I get Toph's sense of urgency and I'm confused as to why there's less of a sense of urgency from Katara and Aang. Yeah, I I do think if I wanted to put myself in Katara's shoes for a minute that maybe she needs to learn the lesson too. Mm. Maybe on a fundamental level, you know, she... She's not the most worldly individual. She spent most of her life just with her tribe as the only bender trying to teach herself. You're right. When they got to the the Northern Water Tribe, she had to stand her ground and throw the ice discs and say, no, this is wrong. You are going to teach me and in a way be the rock. And she, you know, we talk about conversationally how she is the metaphoric rock of the group in a lot of situations, but. I don't think all of that adds up to her having a fundamental understanding of the philosophy behind earthbending. Yeah, I think another thing that comes to mind is that the the major difference between Katara and Aang is that Katara has shown this ability to be stubborn before. Katara has it in her. She's done this. She's achieved that. When have we ever seen Aang truly, truly stand his ground as himself? Well, to take it even a step further than that, Katara has that stubbornness in her, but that stubbornness in her is, to at least some extent, a thing that she had to work through to become the waterbender that she is. Well, like, I'm not saying about that. I'm saying I think it might be hard for her to comprehend that Aang hasn't stood his ground before. Mm. Like, because she's like, I've done it. I've done it against Sokka. Like, it's not, you know, it's a natural part of her personality mm-hmm. that she's she doesn't see it as such a big deal for Aang to learn. And so she doesn't get why Toph is harping on it as much. You know what I mean? And so... She doesn't understand that Aang is slower to process this. And even when she is, when she's working with Aang, when she takes him for waterbending, she throws something at him and he, quote unquote, like stands his ground with his waterbending. He doesn't move. He doesn't avoid it. He slices through the reed. So for her, she doesn't see, she doesn't see the problem. You know what I mean? So that's why her and Toph are kind of butting heads on this. Because Toph sees a problem, Katara doesn't. So Katara thinks that the problem is Toph. Yeah, I was I was approaching it more from the stance of, you know, like Ira says later on in the episode, water is change. To waterbend, you have to, you know, look at the energy of the world around you and very much, you know, go with the flow. And you're you're not fighting the current, you're just subtly redirecting the current. And, you know, you're you're nudging things around. You're not standing firm and pushing them. And so to Katara, that stubbornness is bad. Like beyond not being understandable it's bad it's bad in bending 
but she has it in her personality. Like, you know what I mean? Right. But like in order in order for her to be the accomplished bending master that she is, even though we may not have seen it at some point, she had to have worked through like learning how to put some of that stubbornness in her personality aside. Yeah. I feel like you and I are like looking at this from different frequencies, if that makes sense. I think so. And so that's what's really in- it's. It's what's really interesting and it's it's kind of I know it must seem odd to you how I've like tuned into this frequency and I'm like so strong on it uh-huh. <laughs> and I didn't realize how strong I was on it. Until, I mean, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. You know, I think I think you're looking at it from the perspective of Aang looking at Aang or of I'm sorry, of Katara looking at Aang mm-hmm. and I'm approaching it more from the perspective of like Katara's internal processes. Yeah. And I think I agree with you that Katara doesn't Katara would benefit from also learning why it's so important to earthbending for him to have this trait and for Mm -hmm. him to be um, solid and, you know, stubborn and all these things. I think that would definitely benefit. But like you and I are speaking on different frequencies, Toph and Katara work on different frequencies as well. Yeah. And they don't have the years of friendship to their benefit (laughs) in helping them see each (laughs) other's point of view. Yes, exactly. To be able to balance those and come oh, yeah. <laughs> to a con- come to a conclusion. As an aside, before we like move on to other sections, and all we're gonna do that next. I do really love that when Top is like, "Okay, time to learn Earth bending." Aang is like, "All right, cool. Teach me the Earth tornado." Because we <laughs> yes. talked about that the first time we yes. were at Omashu, how like Boomy does this really cool Earth sand tornado. And, like, thing. Is he kicking with his feet the whole time? Like you, you and I tried to get into the mechanics of it. <laughs> yeah, and and we talked about you know. Ang's air tornado and and I think you mentioned that like water cyclones are a thing you know because we and were we way defi- early and days then we see then. a fire one w- we get like, and like we late. had this whole theory way early on what was it yes. like episode four or five where it was like tornadoes, tornadoes are just like the peak of bending for every <laughs> element <laughs> like the greatest thing you can do is just a tornado yeah and Top's like yeah no we're gonna just like move a rock like yeah, yeah. you gotta move a rock bro <laughs> Your champion, the Blind Bandit! I did some research on this episode because I was compelled to do some research on this episode because I noticed a thing Mm -hmm. and I'm sure this is like a notorious thing in the Avatar fandom, but I'm a new member of the Avatar fandom. And so I don't know about the decades old memes that we have (laughs) going on here. If anyone wants to teach me, please do. I could use a Sifu. Besides me, I'm like Katara, like, you don't call me Sifu. <laughs> so at one point, Toph, like, Earth bends this the armor suit armor mm-hmm. thing, and there's an eye hole on it. So I don't remember which book this is in, because it's in a book in, the, like, the comments area that this was an error in the animation. So I took a look. It's in a book. It's in the art book. It's in the art book. Yeah, I I can't sing that. Uh, (laughs) If I sing that, then LeVar Burton will cry. Um, But yeah, apparently they, when they drew the concept art, like they had a nose hole. Yeah. So she could breathe because, you know, it would make sense that you'd want to be able to breathe through the rock. But yeah, I guess it got lost in in the animation process from, you know, 
from script to screen. Yeah, and kind of got to, lost to in finals. translation. Yeah, and no one picked up on the change. Yeah, and but, so... Yeah, I saw that, and I pointed at it, and I said, ah, that's a thing. Because, like, they do a close-up on her eyes. Yes, yeah. <laughs> in the and eye hole, in the rock armor. Yeah, that's been a thing in the fandom for a while of, like, look at this goof. Why does she need the arm? Like, why are her eyes, like... Like, why does she need that? So, as fun as it is to, like, you know, be all superior and point at it and be like, ha, 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 um, actually, she doesn't need that. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm, I worked out a headcanon for this. Mm-hmm. That, Go ahead. like, this is a move that she does, and not everyone that she fights knows that she's blind. Mm. Because I, I would imagine that, you know, in her head, her seismic sense is, like, a significant advantage. And yeah. if her enemy knows about her seismic sense, they can use that knowledge against her. Mm. So it's to her advantage to make her enemies think that she can see. That way they underestimate her. Also, it is really intimidating to have this little girl rock monster coming at you just open-eyed staring at you out of the holes in the armor the whole time it's just tough being extra if i had to build a head cannon for this uh without no with it, no without knowing that it's a that it's you know was a lost in translation thing i would say that toff definitely wants her eyes to be the last thing someone sees when she's coming at them like she's like yeah and i just want to point this out now is that so the only enemies Toph has had prior to this are like wrestling buddies, like people she wrestled against. So are they all her buddies. I don't know. I'm they were ready them to kill her. They they knew her. They knew about her. Like she 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 was familiar with them enough to you know the pebble. Like she she fought them weekly. Okay. Yeah, but I don't exactly get the sense they were going out for a bit of jasmine tea after the match. No, no. Um, actually, like later in. One of the comics from, uh, like, The Lost Days is what they call it. Her and the boulder end up friends. Like, she helps him with his kittens and everything. Like, it's a long thing. The boulder has kittens? Yes, it is a really cute comic. Regular kittens or, or hybrid kittens? I think they're regular kittens. He must have gotten them from a mamashu then. Yeah, I think they're regular. I think they're regular kittens. Or, or but- are they Miyuki's kittens? Oh. <gasps> Miyuki. Little chaos kittens. Little chaos kittens. Is that what Miyuki gets up to? (laughs) In the Fire Nation? I don't know. Maybe. Um, But no. So the... Going back to my point, the only enemies that she is going to... Like, she's starting to make her enemies now. Like, just now. So no one knows about her. Like, her parents... Like, the, the entire city was like, no, they don't have a kid. Like... That's how, you know, sheltered she was. So her top three enemies right now are actually like, did she even meet May and Tylee? No. So her top enemy is Azula. She saw them in the distance. She never met them. She still doesn't know that they're not benders. Yeah, no. So her top enemy is Azula. Like that is all she knows as an enemy right now, Azula. And whoever Azula tells about the girl who attacked her with earthbending. So I would like to adjust my headcanon then. Okay. To say that it wasn't Toph being necessarily like, you know, the last thing you see before you die are my little eyes staring Mm -hmm. at you. But it's just Toph being showy and extra for the wrestling ring. Mm. And like, yeah, it's a goof. But you know what? Goofs sometimes lean to some of the best headcanons ever. Yeah, yeah. 
let's go with that. Yeah, I really love that about this, but makes makes me very much think about how she is just creating her enemy base and what her how she's represented in the future to other people because she is she is a little blind girl fighting people and who wants to admit that, you know, they got their asses kicked by a nine-year-old, like a blind nine-year-old. Yeah. Whole armies. So, I mean, and she's like, yeah, I did that. It's just such a great energy. Especially because like with her energy, she's like, yeah, I beat his candy ass. I just, I think that's one of the things I love the most about Toph though, is just her energy that she brings always. Like the way she's cracking nuts for Momo, the way she just is like rock collide. Um, and come on, twinkle toes. Like the energy she brings to everything. It's always 100%. And I just can't be We wrote that you this me. letter. I'm blind. <laughs> She's like, you got to face it head on. No trickety trick. Like she's just, (laughs) it's so honest and to the point. And she doesn't have time to deal with your crap. And I think that is what team avatar needs. Cause like, you know, Katara is, can, she's very good at what she does, but she can sometimes be enabling of Aang and Sokka does his best to keep people on track, but sometimes they don't necessarily respect what he does and brings to the group. And Aang can bring the power and can bring the focus and bring them together, but sometimes gets lost in his own world. And so it's so interesting to see this is what they needed. They needed someone to throw it all off. To cut through the bullet. Yeah. Say, I'm sorry. I don't have time for this. She doesn't even know about the deadline. She doesn't even know that, that like, Roku said, hey, you guys have till the summer or else the Fire Nation's taking over everything. And she still doesn't have time for it. I'll be curious to find out when she finds out about the deadline. I think soon. Think real soon. I, I think, like, next week. I didn't understand your note, and I need you to explain it. You talk about the transition from Toph's bending philosophy to Iroh's dream and then said the parallel plots in this episode are so good. And I'm just, what is it about like Toph's philosophy that matches Iroh's dream? I just didn't see what you were seeing in that. Oh, um, I didn't really, I don't think there was anything really a a lot deeper like connecting those two just the fact that you know from the start of from the very first episode the entire time that we have watched Iroh training Zuko everything about Zuko's firebending training has started with Iroh talking about like the concepts and the philosophy behind firebending and then using that as a springboard to get into the techniques and for the majority of the time that we've seen Aang learning anything, he hasn't had that process. It's been very like skill-based and oriented and you know, do this and then do that. And we haven't seen him had have to interface with like those deeper concepts. And Toph totally approaches earthbending from like you have to be the rock. If the rock is stubborn, you have to be stubborn. Like she gets into it and we see that teaching approach on the other side in the way that we haven't before. And I think it's really cool that, you know, Toph says the rock is stubborn. You have to be stubborn like the rock if you're going to move the rock. And we cut right from that and we transition straight to Iroh. Like, this is a thing that Iroh would say if Iroh were teaching earthbending. Mm, and okay. to drive that point home, the next person you're going to see on screen is Iroh. Okay. All right. So it's not necessarily anything that has to do 
with the dream, but the fact that it's then turning the lens to Iroh, who this has been his teaching process yeah. with Zuko for the majority of the time. Yeah, I think it's it's a continuation of the connection between Iroh and Toph that we see form in the in the last episode in the chase, mm-hmm. the tea scene, um, because we know that these two characters operate on some level on the same wavelength. Mm-hmm. because they're able to relate to each other pretty deeply and pretty like right off the bat. Yeah, pretty easily. They they're on the same frequency. Yeah, they speak each other's language. Yeah. And they're speaking that language to their respective students right now. Mm. And neither of their students are having a great time with it. <laughs> no, no, Suko. Zuko, Aang, like they, I I mentioned it earlier, but they're kind of dealing with the same thing right now. Like the plots are parallel to the point of basically being the same. The only difference is like in order to have the same plot of we are going to throw the main character of this plot's biggest challenge at them by like cutting to the heart of their own personal issues. Like what that is, is different for each of them because they're different people, but they're Mm -hmm. going through the same process. So what would you say their personal issues are in here? Let's let's go on these parallel journeys together. What would you say are the issues that the issue that Aang is dealing with and the issue that Zuko is dealing with? I know my answer for Aang. Yeah, for I mean, for Aang, his whole life, he's been running and he needs to learn to just stand firm. I mean, I very much am reminded of the storm. This episode reminded me a lot of the storm. Yeah. yeah, Wow. That is like you said that. And I agree with you, but I'm continuing to think about it and agree more. And they're both being confronted with these major problems that they have to deal with in order to get to the next step. And they're the same problems. It's Aang's avoidance and running from issues. And Zuko's, if I'm remembering the storm right, it it would be that pride. Yeah. And the uh, chip on his shoulder that he has with the world. Yeah. And and I think if you were to ask Zuko what his problem is in this episode, like what his, <laughs> his biggest <dad>. issue is. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm I don't kidding. think he would say that. <laughs> no. What's my biggest problem? What's my yeah. biggest problem? I don't have the avatar. What's That's my, my biggest What's my biggest I'm issue finished. right now? I'm a fugitive. Okay, but like if you actually sat him down and you got him to be introspective for half a second, which kudos to you for getting him to be introspective for half a second. But if you could get him to do it, I think he would say that his shame is his biggest issue right now. His sense of shame. Mm, I think, well, honestly, I think you're asking the wrong person what their biggest issue is, which is you should be asking Iroh and Toph instead of Aang and Zuko because the two of them are having trouble confronting any of the problem. Right. But that's why I think Zuko would say that his shame is his biggest problem. And I think we know that because the lesson that Iroh ends up teaching him in the end or trying to teach him in the end is, and it's one of my favorite Iroh quotes, pride is not the opposite of shame, but it's source. Like that is Iroh attempting to say you're leaning into your own pride as a way to fight your shame. But all you're doing is feeding that shame. But Iroh is the one who identifies shame. It's not It's not Zuko. Zuko doesn't understand. Zuko thinks his pride is the issue, which is true, technically. No, 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 no. Zuko okay. thinks it's his shame, which is why he is being prideful. He is being mm. prideful in an attempt to combat the shame. And Iroh I, recognizes this. I think we're saying the same thing, but in reverse. Then maybe you misspoke, because I think you said that Zuko would say his pride is his problem. I mean, yeah, because it's getting in the way. He's like, he's like, I am proud of myself, but for some reason, this still isn't working. Like, yeah, but in, I don't think he would acknowledge that he, his pride is his problem there. I think he doesn't see his pride as a problem. Maybe I am misspeaking. 
Maybe I am. I don't know. Okay. I think we're thinking the same thing. I'm I'm not I'm not married to this. Uh <laughs> No, I know who you're married to. He's a nice guy. <laughs> He's a nice guy. I don't feel I don't feel as strongly on this argument. I feel I feel stronger on other arguments. Um, this is not the fight you want to have. No, I have many other fights in me. Mm. <laughs> but so on these parallel journeys, who? So who do you think learns the? Do you think they both learn the lesson? And if so, who learns it kind of first? And if not, then who who learned and who didn't? I think we see Aang learn the lesson in this episode. Whether or not it sticks, I'd have to keep... Like, I don't okay. remember enough book too well enough to, yep. to say whether or not it's actually stuck. Mm-hmm. Does Zuko learn the lesson? I think he does. Okay. I think he learns the lesson in the last five seconds of this episode. Mm. I think he spends the entire episode refusing to learn the lesson. Mm-hmm. He makes it to the mountaintop. He, he walks away from Iroh again. He makes mm-hmm. it to the mountaintop. He's shouting at the heavens. I have questions for you about that. Mm-hmm. There is no answer. In fact, fe- well, actually, there kind of is an answer. He-, he says, you've never like, you know, come on, strike me down. You've never held back. Mm-hmm. Why would you do so now? Like, give it yeah. to me. And he is met with like the what he is saying is everything has always been hard. Everything is. He's had to fight for everything he has. Everything has always been a struggle for him. Mm-hmm. It's the same speech he made in the cave to Aang. Yeah. And what is the hardest thing for him in this moment? Not being struck. And he's not struck. And that is hard. And he has to deal with the hardest thing he has had to deal with up until this point, which is a thing that we keep coming back to Zuko dealing with the hardest thing he's ever had to deal with up to this point. Like he just keeps getting piled on for him. And I think because it's not the world directly attacking him in this moment it is quite the opposite it is him being ignored and left with nothing but himself he's forced to turn inward in a way that he hasn't before and that's why he cries i would argue that his yelling into the sky and his crying shows that he hasn't learned his lesson the yelling shows that he hasn't the crying shows that he is starting to i think that the whole point of him going up to the mountain that's not humbling and even his crying i think his crying comes out of frustration that he's he's like the world has shown me such derision that my whole life you i'm always getting knocked back down i ask you to knock me down this time and you don't and it's a frustration of kind of like a how dare you type of thing as opposed to having to look inward in a way, he's frustrated that the world still won't answer. When he finally asks, yes, strike me down right now, it won't do it. Like that silence is worse. And that I, I'm like, I think it's it's not humbling to have gone and done that. And I think it is a humbling act upon him to not be struck down. However, his crying, you know, maybe it's him feeling the shame, but I didn't, I don't know, it didn't read that way to me. And I think there are actions going forward that show he's still having trouble learning that lesson. I want to be clear. I don't think that him abandoning Iroh and going up the, like, I don't think the climbing the mountain is a humbling experience for him. Okay. I don't, I don't think that the yelling at whoever he's yelling at is a humbling experience. Just for ask him. me, ask me now. We're on Who this. do you We're think on. he's yelling at? I think he is yelling at fate and the world okay hold that and we're gonna come back to it in a second because i do think like i don't think that him yelling at fate and the world is a humbling experience for him i think fate and the world ignoring him and him being left up on the mountain with nothing 
knowing how much he threw away to get there is the humbling experience. But I would I would argue that there is a difference between being humbled and humbling yourself. Because yeah, someone can serve you a slice of humble pie like and you eat it. Like th- like someone can serve that up to you, but and le- like humbling yourself is a very different act. It is it needs to be an action rather than a reaction in my opinion. It needs to be uh, in like maybe I'm getting a little philosophical spiritual here, but like it needs to be an action of going to your knees and and you know and letting it in as opposed to being struck down. I get that and I agree with you in some context, but I think I think in this context, you know, if bear with me for a second, but he is he is going and begging to be struck down and he is not and that is that leaves him hollow and empty and you're right it is him being humbled by fate by the world but the the fate and the world can deal you a humbling blow but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are going to receive that humbling blow as a humbling blow unless you are open to the idea of that happening you cannot be humbled by someone else if you are so prideful that you will not allow yourself to be slapped down, to be humbled. So two things, two things. Do you think a prideful reaction would have been earlier Zuko during, I forget which episode, but him just lashing out with fire and whatever in him? Do you think that would have been the reaction if you had said he didn't learn this lesson? That would have been his reaction. Yes, completely. And okay. more to the point, I think that and you know, a season one Zuko would have stood on that mountain and he would not have lowered his head. He would not have bowed his head to the universe and cried. He would have shouted at the sky and just blasted fire into the air for an indeterminate period of time until he exhausted himself. Okay. All right. Great. All right. Now you've got me, you've got me more on your page. And then I have one more question. Do you think Zuko is happy he didn't get struck by lightning? Like, do you think, like, what is his emotions feeling about not getting struck? Like, do you think, because my thought, like, again, maybe this isn't really a question so much as something I'm trying to think of right now, is he th- throws himself up there. He, this cathartic yelling at the world, just strike me down, just do it, just do it already. And it doesn't. And I can almost feel a kind of sense of like, this sucks, but almost a weird relief feel to it that like, maybe Iroh's right. Because Iroh spends the whole time saying you like, you don't want to get like, no, you're crazy. Don't get struck by lightning. It's bad. And so I just kind of wonder what are the emotions there? This might be me projecting some of my own feelings about my own personal journey onto Zuko. Go ahead, Zuko. I already did this on Toph. It's fine. But like, we're we're doing this. So, you know, I don't think he's there yet. I don't think he's feeling relieved. I think, I think he's disappointed that he wasn't struck down. And I think that really gets to like the heart of the disconnect, the fundamental disconnect that he and Iroh have. And I want to open that up right now. Um... Because I, I put this note in the document, and I, I don't know if you agree with me, so I'm just going to say it and, like, poke me where you will, okay? Go ahead. Iroh is teaching Zuko everything that he can to protect Zuko, to, you know, be there to support his nephew, his surrogate son, in a way. Mm-hmm. But we learn in this episode that, like, Iroh is very much taking the stance. I mean, and we kind of had a sense beforehand of, like, I'm teaching you this stuff, but just because I'm teaching you this stuff doesn't mean that you have to use what I'm teaching you. I hope you mm. don't have to use what I'm teaching you. Mm. 
Maybe if I teach you this stuff, you won't have to use it、mm. because the act of learning it will get you to a place where you don't find yourself in these situations anymore.、Mm. But Zuko, as the student, is very much taking the stance of you need to teach me these things so that you can. You need to give me power so that I can use that power to prove myself to my father, my sister, the world, myself, whomever. Fate. I don't know. Whoever he's trying to prove himself to, and I think that fundamental disconnect. It's why they have their falling out here. It's why Zuko, for the most part, takes forever to hear the lessons that Iroh is trying to teach him. It's why he has to walk away from Iroh again and again in order for those lessons to sink in. Because he has to explore the failure that comes from trying to prove yourself using something that you should not be using to prove yourself with, like. He sees the measure of himself as the extent of his own personal prowess in firebending. He sees that as equivalent to his power as an individual. And the whole time he's he's trying to gain more power as an individual by gaining prowess as a firebender. Iro is saying the way you gain prowess as a firebender is the way you gain power as an individual by getting to a point where you're in control of your emotions and your energy, and you're not constantly trying to prove yourself to everyone and everything you come across. So I think what's interesting and the disconnect between Iro and Zuko there, like I love your thoughts on this. First of all, <laughs> I think they're really great. I am in support. I actually don't disagree.、Um, I think one of my things here is that Zuko sees himself on this grand trajectory already, and Iro does not see the momentum, if you will. Like I feel like Zuko feels the momentum of the universe pushing him forward, chugging along on those tracks real, real fast. And Zuko is a train going forward. Iro sees him as a cart on a road with many forks in that road, and so that's part of that disconnect. Of it's like you and me of saying where I'm like, where I'm like, oh, it's you know, it's it's a destiny, it's a fate, and you're like, no, it's choices. And it's where you and I disconnect. And weirdly, I'm on the Zuko side of like. He's a part of this. He is on this train. He cannot get off, no matter what. And I see his side of like, I need these skills because it's coming for me. All of this, I can't. There's something in him, and something about everything that's been happening to him on his path so far that keeps him moving in the same direction and keeps him kind of tethered to it. Like it, even if he were to. Step away, that it would just push him right back onto the path that he's been on, and that he feels a lack of control in that. And I see Iro trying to convince Zuko that he does have a bit more control of that than he thinks. And I think you and I are definitely going to get into that in the Bossing Say episodes. Absolutely. Well, I think if I may draw one more parallel. To, Go ahead to expound upon what you were you were saying because I I do strongly agree, and I think you. You turned my mind to a way of of framing it that I would not have gone to otherwise, but that really hit home for me. Zuko sees himself as the protagonist. He wants to be a hero, but he doesn't understand, despite the fact that Iro is desperately trying to teach him, a true hero is not measured by the strength of his arm, but by the strength of his heart. Cute animal alert! All right. 
let's talk because we got some uh we got some like our normals right now we got appa we got momo we got the ostrich horse I, I feel like I need to name this ostrich horse at this point, and I'm going to name it Traitor because I just think this this ostrich horse has no loyalty. It has been loyal to Zuko. This ostrich horse, the only one that's been more loyal to Zuko is Iroh. Mm-hmm. Okay. I just don't trust an ostrich horse. Don't trust it. I don't understand. This ostrich horse has been like, maybe this ostrich horse only left song because it was always truly loyal to Zuko. Maybe that ostrich horse was Mm. born and it was like one day the crown prince of the Fire Nation will be my master Uh huh. and he Uh will ride on my back and I will take him where he pleases. (laughs) I maybe that's the real destiny. Maybe, maybe. You're over here like, I don't trust this ostrich horse. It has a duty to be loyal. And I'm like, this ostrich horse has a destiny to be Zuko's. I I don't trust it. I don't trust it. I don't like it. I don't know. I'm not about it. You want me to see duty in Avatar? Ostrich horse. Uh, And then before I talk about the main one, there is a a cute little frog at some point that Momo was going to eat, maybe? Momo was definitely going to eat that frog. Going to eat that frog. Okay, let's just, (laughs) we can agree on that. Momo was going to pull a baby Yoda eat the frog. Absolutely. Would have been adorable. Uh, But then we need to talk about the star of, (laughs) the star of this episode, Foo-foo, cuddly poops, a.k.a. a saber-tooth moose lion cub. And then we also meet Mama Saber-tooth Moose Lion. Not as cute. I mean, I don't know. Still cute. Still cute. not as cute. I think one of my favorite parts about this is that this really captures the correct size of a moose. (laughs) Moose are huge. They are dinosaurs. Like, they are ginormous. And they're fast yes like so (laughs) i being from the northeast and going through new hampshire and maine uh, you know a a number of times do you have moose up there uh yeah yeah did you didn't realize that came they came that far south new hampshire yeah okay i'll have to be more careful and occasionally i drive to see you occasionally into massachusetts it's a rare one but it's happened is it? But it's it's still like a newsworthy event. Like there's a moose yeah. on the loose kind of thing. Well, there's mainly it's mainly newsworthy because they're so destructive. Mm. Because if your car goes up against, so if your car goes up against a deer, Kelly, if my car goes up against a deer, I'm starting to pray because a deer will mess me up. Yeah, a deer will mess you up. A moose will total you. You will not. You will not survive that. Yeah, you I, will I, not come out of that. I am aware. Like, yeah, I just, for people who don't know. Uh, like, yeah, well, a deer, uh, like a buck will total your car. Yes, a moose, like it is absolutely destructive. There is no winning here. I think we need to give it to the cub and move on because I don't think it's in the spirit of the cute animal alert to put the fear of moose in people. Oh, absolutely. This is like PSA, watch out for the moose. They're, they're cute, but they'll kill you. Yeah, yeah. Um. But I absolutely love Fufu Cuddly Poops. One of my favorite, I think, is the cutest. Just the name Fufu Cuddly Poops. Fufu Cuddly Poops' relationship with Sokka is amazing to me. It's um, got Fufu Cuddly Poops has Momo energy. Mm, strong Momo energy. I love that Sokka is such a like meat eater, meat guy, but animals love him. Mm-hmm. Like, well, not actually, I'll take that back. Animals love to mess with him. Because they know. Because they know. They know he'd eat them. They know. Yeah. Chuck, 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 chuck.
fight me on something? Uh oh yeah. So Moth v Katara. <laughs> so the end of this episode, we've got like a battle at the end. It's Aang versus the saber tooth moose lion and Zuko versus the world. Do you wanna argue do you wanna argue about Tafi Katara before that? No, I think it's a part of this. Okay. Because I think we've kind of talked about we've talked about their uh, internal battles and their parallel journeys. Mm-hmm. I think it's important to talk about the end result of their lessons. Oh, and like how Toph took Katara's advice. Explain, because I don't see that at all. So at the end of this episode, you think that Toph took Katara's advice? I do. Explain to me. Well, Toph admits she took Katara's advice. Does she? Yeah. She says it, but I don't think she... Katara says, so you tried the positive reinforcement thing, and Toph says, yeah. I think she absolutely is lying to Katara. But she did do the positive reinforcement thing. How? I mean, she went with her own approach, and she trusted her own instincts and, you know, her own strategies for teaching earthbending. Aang basically got to his breaking point, had a crisis of character, found himself in a situation where he was able to find the strength to stand his ground, and when he did, Toph applaud, literally applauded that effort. Do you feel she, like... Oh, okay. To continue a little more, you've got to have a little on the more rock on that. With the stick and with Momo cracking the nuts at the end after the the showdown with mm-hmm. with the moose lion, mm-hmm. that applause for Aang, I think, is genuine. She plays it off as sarcasm, but I think it is genuine positive reinforcement. She is continuing to push his button, knowingly push his buttons to get a rise out of him because she knows he needs, she knows in that moment that he needs to be in that heightened, angered, emotional state to do what he just did, but this time with earthbending. Mm -hmm. But she also is like, yeah, you learned the hard part of the lesson. You stood your ground to save your friend. But she never acts otherwise. I think that's my I think that's my issue with with this. She never acts other than pushing his buttons. And again, I take her sarcasm. It's a, I take her sarcasm. Like that is a strong part of her personality. We saw this personality trait and this, this is who she is. And her saying, this is who I am. If you don't like it, deal with it. The whole episode before. So I don't see her, the rock changing. So here's where I think the, the hang up might be. Cause, okay. cause this was like what I have to tell myself in order to see. Okay. I think the problem is we don't see. Aang stand his ground before the Moose Lion showdown. I think if Katara never gave the unsolicited advice to Toph and, you know, yeah, she could have done it better, but she, I think Toph heard it. And I think Toph is smart enough to acknowledge that, like, you might not know earthbending and you might not approve of my techniques, but you do know my student. I don't see that at all, because what is the positive reinforcement? That's my thing. Positive reinforcement is encouraging, is the carrot from the stick. She says, like, good job. When Ang stands his ground, she claps. That's the positive reinforcement. I don't take that as genuine whatsoever. She is being I sarcastic think- there. It's like, finally, you get it? It took Sokka almost dying for you to get it? Fine, sure, but use that now. I think if Katara hadn't given the unsolicited advice that she would not have applauded and gone with even the sarcastic reinforcement approach. I think she would have said, what, so you can do it here, but you can't do it there. Like it would have gone straight back to derision and button pushing. 
There wouldn't even have been a hint of it. I think she absolutely would have clapped. She has she has a sense of humor in this. She's been pushing his buttons this whole time. She's still continuing to push his buttons. That clapping is pushing his buttons. It is not encouraging at all. If someone just at you, do you find that encouraging? I think a part of me, you know, if I actually did the thing that they were telling me to do, I think a part of the human brain would hear it that way. I do. I don't. I don't know if it would be conscious. I don't know, because I've done that to you. Yeah. <laughs> it was not called encouraging. <laughs> it wasn't called encouraging at the time, but you know what? Yes. Looking back on it, you were right. Yeah, I know I was right. <laughs> Turn it off for half a second and see that like... But I'll be honest, I was not doing a, it from a, from a place of like positive reinforcement because for... for well, maybe Toph's a better my, teacher than you. I don't know. I, from the perspective is Toph has been telling Katara that she's enabling him. Anytime you give him a shit, like anytime you're doing that encouraging thing, you're giving him wiggle room. You're giving him a way out. And that's not helping him. And she stares Katara down on this and says, that is not helping him. And so I don't see her moving from that because the thing is, and I think Toph is right on this, there is no other way to learn this. You have to face it head on. Yeah, but what do you and do so when your student does face it head on? You show them what they need to do. She she you goes show them into, what they need to do and they do it. And what do you say? That's not good enough. Do it more. She said that's a start. She said that's a start. Which is positive reinforcement. Positive would, reinforcement is not always you did everything perfectly right. Here's a lollipop. If Katara saw how Toph got there, how Toph dealt with it, Katara would not agree with her method. Do you really think if Katara stood by and watched Toph let Sokka almost get crushed by the saber tooth, almost get Aang, get crushed by the saber tooth, watched him, watched her clap and say, okay, now move a rock. Do you think Katara would approve that and say that, yes, that is the correct way to do it? Because that's what- That's not what I'm saying. And I don't think that. What I'm saying is that if Katara hadn't intervened earlier, Toph wouldn't have said, that's good, now move a rock. Toph would have said, that's not good enough. I don't agree. I just don't agree. I think she would have said, I think she would have said, fine, move a rock now. That's because she, she was able to witness the spark in Aang to finally stand his ground. Again, even the clapping, the clapping wasn't enough. Okay. If she was, if she was truly clapping, do you think she would have continued with the, with the glider to crush nuts? Because she continued to push his buttons. He wasn't fully there yet. He wasn't, but she acknowledged that he had made progress. And I don't think without Katara, she would have done that. That's all I'm saying. Okay. I still disagree with you. That little tiny bit. And I think that that little tiny acknowledgement was enough for Aang, maybe not consciously, probably subconsciously, but it was enough for him to be able to, to keep going on when she went back almost immediately, almost simultaneously to pushing for more. Mm. I I see your point on the on Aang recognizing what was happening, but I don't think that Toph changed her style. And I think that's the main I think this is a main view that I see for a while. I don't think we see Toph change her style for quite some time. She is very set in her ways of how things are done and how she does them and how others should be doing things. And even her style of earthbending, 
I don't think we will see change in her for quite some time. I still don't see change in her. That's fair. I don't think that this is like a fundamental change that Toph is making, but progress isn't linear. I think this is, you know, an incorporation of an idea that wasn't her own for half a second that ended up working out. And maybe in the future, she doesn't do it again. Like maybe she throws that uh, away for a bit and, you know, doesn't come back to it until later. But I, I, I think in that moment, there is a little bit of Katara's influence there. I think she continues. She, she even throughout your what you say is positive reinforcement. She continues to call him names. She continues to call him Twinkle Toes and put him down and push. And I think she said to Katara that um, when Katara's like, oh, did you use positive reinforcement? And like, did you work with him as opposed to like pushing him? And I think she said, yeah, sure, to get her off her back because she she was like, go away, go away. Yeah, sure, whatever, sure. Because the approach to waterbending is not the same as the approach to earthbending. And it's what was, it was part of the blockage for Aang. And if she allowed wiggle room for him to squirm out or, honestly, I even noticed that when he pushes, when he finally does push the rock, it's wiggly. It's not that strong. If you compare how he learns waterbending and how he is very much a natural at it into to this moment where he moves the rock, it's wiggly. It is not as full and strong yet. And he needs to be pushed more. And that's what Toph's going to do. But he can't be pushed more without the tiniest acknowledgement of the progress that he has made. And I... I think there's I think a difference it ties between... in. I think it ties in to the broader theme of the episode mm-hmm. of you know the 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 moral good in this world is is the unity and the strength that comes from different viewpoints coming together. You know, Iroh tries to teach that lesson to Zuko. You know, you must gather wisdom from many different places. Iroh has gathered wisdom from many different places and is trying to pass it on as a singular entity to Zuko. Aang is quite literally gathering wisdom from different places. And the different places that he's gathering wisdom from are in turn influencing each other, maybe in small ways, maybe not to a significant extent right away or in a linear sense right away. But there is that effect, whether the members of Team Avatar want it or realize it or not, because you can't spend time with someone without being influenced by them. I think there is a strong difference between recognizing that someone has achieved the goal and positive reinforcement. I have moved away from directly calling it positive reinforcement because I think I think that's part of where we're disagreeing because you're right. It is sarcastic. It's 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 not traditional, full on, wholehearted, you know, completely effective positive. It's not textbook positive reinforcement. Yeah. It is Katara's influence into Toph's in Toph style. And again, I don't see it yet. Toph is not capable I, I of the think- positive reinforcement that Katara is saying that she should give that you are saying is that like you are looking at as what positive reinforcement is. That's not like Toph doesn't have that in her right now. I think Toph, I think Toph has it in her to acknowledge when someone has accomplished the goal that she's been asking them to do. And And she's like, okay, great. You did it. Fine. I'm not going to throw you a parade. Like you did it. You did the thing that I've been asking you to do for days. Are you serious? And acknowledging that someone has accomplished a goal is a form of positive reinforcement. No, it's not. I think there's a strong difference there. I think, I think there is a difference there. 
I think saying, all right, fine, you did it is very different than great. So proud of you. You did it. We can move like we can move forward. Like, do you want to show it again? Like there's I think there's such a difference. There is a difference. I'm not saying there's not a difference between those two things, but I'm saying, you know, like, yeah, you did it is a low mm-hmm. level positive reinforcement. Like it's not as mm. good as you can do, but like you if you want it to well, be where's better. The rea- posit- like where's so. I'm literally breaking down the words. Where's the positive? Where's the reinforcement? Are you saying like literally good job? Good is the positive job is the reinforcement. Yeah, I am. I, I just can't agree with that. It's like you can provide validation for someone by saying you're valid, or you can provide validation for someone by empathizing with them to the extent that you are expressing their emotions as they're feeling them. One of them is a lot more intense than the other, but they're both validating. Mm. Like, you know, yeah, you did it. Now do this. That's like, you know, a level one positive reinforcement. Good job. Yay. Congratulations. I'm so proud of you. That's like, you know, level four or five. Like this way. Do you think Katara would call what Toph did positive reinforcement? No, I don't. Because I don't think Katara would see that low level as that. But I I think she learned it. I don't think she used Katara's method. She chose her own method. And I think, I think this would have been her method. I think would positive reinforcement. I think, okay, I think Toph would have done this regardless of what Katara said. I don't I think, think she would have. I think Toph would have done it regardless. Because, because earlier when she's training and she's training him a bit more on seismic sense, she when he manages to hit with the boomerang on the right spot, she does give a nod. She does like she does acknowledge that he did it. So I think this is exactly what she was doing the whole time. It's just in a bigger method because because he achieved a bigger goal. And even his big his big block and getting past that was punch the rock. But that later on, when he jumps out of the way of the rolling boulder, she doesn't acknowledge that he was able to tell when the boulder was about to hit him. She focuses on the fact that he didn't bend the boulder because it wasn't the lesson. The lesson was not about seismic sense there. The lesson was you need to stand your ground. And he failed. It was a failure. You pass or you fail. There's no in between for her. If she was taking Katara's method, she would have given him credit for having sent the boulder. She would have acknowledged that. I think in the end, she's incorporating some of Katara's influence. I do not agree. You're not going to get me on this one. I do not agree. I'm sorry. I don't think you have to. I think the <laughs> episode sorry, as I'm I just... see it, you know, it, it has a cohesive overarching theme. All of the storylines and characters so play think... into it. So, so and you think... I think the way that I see it honestly makes Toph's character a bit more interesting. I think it makes Toph's character more interesting that it takes her a lot longer to to change her ways to be a part of the group. I like seeing her as someone who experiences a sort of nonlinear growth. I like the delay that it's not as easy for her to be a part of a team, that it's a struggle for her and that it's her big lesson. She's managed to accomplish so many things in her life to be an incredible earthbending master, to be able to create seismic sense. And she later creates another form of bending to be able to know who she is as a person which, you know, we've got characters left and right having identity crises, but Toph is not one of them. And so she's accomplished so much in there and she's so independent in that manner that it's the teamwork that is the big, that's that's the stand your ground for her. Toph is not having an identity crisis. She had an identity crisis last week. Like, I... I <laughs> the concept of letting people in was her identity crisis. 
It wasn't a crisis of identity. It's the teamwork issue. That's what I'm saying. The teamwork issue got to her she knows sense who of she self. Is. She knows who she is. It's working with a team that is her That is her rock. That That's her boulder in front of her. We have to say rock because every time you say boulder, I just think the boulder. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> But that is that is the blockage. I just I fundamentally disagree. Oh my god! I don't think we're gonna come to an agreement on this one. No, I think this I don't, is bigger than Spirit World. Honestly, honestly, yes, I think this is truly like I I don't even think it's a semantics thing. I think you and I are just coming we just see from two, two different characters. Yeah, absolutely. And again, uh, may, maybe this is a difference of this is like my million three watch. <laughs> so maybe it's there. Or maybe it's the fact that I relate to her a lot more. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know. But I find it more interesting that she takes more time to be a part of the group. And I think it takes quite some time for her to make a breakthrough. And she's well, kind of an outsider for a bit. I think it's more interesting that way that she's an outsider than her being enmeshed in the group right away. That it's, that it's. You know, it only took one episode for them to get all figure it figure it out and influence each other and stuff. I'm not saying it only takes one episode. I'm saying after an episode, and it hasn't been one, it's been a couple, There, there's a small little divot in her armor. And Katara can work her way in for but a moment into that divot. And I don't think it sticks. I don't think that that influence stays there much beyond that one fleeting moment. Okay. And like that that's what I was saying with Toph does take a long time and it is nonlinear. Okay. It's not like, you know, she lets people in to the outer circle and then the next circle and then the mm-hmm. next circle and like it's straight like no, she lets people in a little too much and then she pushes them back out and then maybe they let them in a little more and no, that's right, you're gonna stay there for a while. Okay, maybe no, that's too much, go back out some more. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a project. And you take a step forward and you take a couple steps back and you take a couple more steps forward and you wait there a bit and you I think eyes. who Toph is and who she puts out into the world that that's almost too much work for her. She doesn't have that time. She doesn't have that emotional energy to put into that. So, and I, I will, I will die on that hill. Like, and uh, you know what? I'm just going to keep pointing things out like that for like the rest of this series and Cora. <laughs> And she's that is that is her journey. Her journey is not learning new techniques as much as she will learn them. Her journey is not, you know, to be a better bender like Katara's. It's not to find out who she is like Sokka. Her journey is not to save the world like Aang's or bring balance to it like Aang's. Her journey is not Zuko's to find to that identity crisis as well. Her journey is not Azula's to conquer the world or whatever. Her journey is to take this whole person that she has built in her isolated self and to find a way to share that. And that is something she is truly deeply uncomfortable with. And in moments, she will say how uncomfortable she is with it, like moments with Iroh. But she can she can only say that to a stranger that she thinks she'll never see again because she's still not connecting and she has serious issues connecting and that is from how she was raised and that is from her environment that she built herself in so i think it's more interesting to see her struggle with that connecting and that that connection is not always easy we've had easy 
group connection already. Basically, anyone who's come into contact with Team Avatar kind of meshes with them, even Jet and the gang, okay? But it does not click for her, and it's harder for her to relate to people. And when does she, when does she find her family? When does she acknowledge these people as family and not just an escape from the world she's been trapped in? Because I think her journey out of her, out of her shelteredness is a selfish one at first. And I want to see where it stops becoming selfish. Because even the act of teaching the avatar how to earthbend, like she gets a free ride out. She's like, cool, I don't have to hang out with these awful parents anymore. Get to see the world. And also, I'm the most incredible earthbender ever. I get to teach the avatar and be better earthbender than him. Like, she loves the clout, okay? She didn't think she would at first, but like, you know, it's it's all selfish. When does she start to care about others? And I think the first time we're going to see her start to care outside herself is next episode, is the library. And it's not a person. So this episode, I feel like we can't go by without acknowledging the human in the whole. What do you mean? We got through this entire episode without really, like we mentioned him offhand once. In the Just like Team Avatar, alert. we completely forgot about Sokka. <laughs> in the whole. But I, I don't know why I got really introspective about Sokka in this whole. I was like, he's having another identity crisis. And I was like, do I need to like create my own little jingle for another Soccer identity crisis. I don't know. No, 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 no. Just that I, that was a nice jingle. But mm-hmm. the second you said jingle and soccer identity crisis, mm-hmm. it's the same number of syllables as Doofenshmirtz Evil Incorporated. Soccer identity crisis. Yeah, I love right. It. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I kind of love it. But okay. So I don't know why I got really introspective on this. I know I'm a soccer stan. I get it. I at me bro i think this is a stock uh sokka stan podcast at this yeah basically i mean we're like like sokka stan may stan ty i'm everybody everybody we just we just stand the show i i just love this show so much except jet (laughs) yeah we both hate jet um (laughs) so identity crisis about this identity crisis he starts talking about how you know He's like, I'll give up meat and sarcasm if I can get out of this hole. And that's, you know, that's my whole thing. I'm the sarcasm and meat guy. But as he says that, Fufu Cuddly Poops pulls at his ponytail and undoes his ponytail as well. And I don't know if you remember, like, ponytail the guy. previous episode. Yeah, of him. He's like, he's like, I'm not ponytail guy. I don't want to be ponytail guy. And explaining his crisis with that. And I'm like, he even loses that. Even loses ponytail guy. But I will say, when Aang comes over and is talking to Sokka, he doesn't give up on his sarcasm. Even in his darkest moments, he's like, he's like, like you're stuck in a rock between a rock and a hard place. God, I know that, buddy. Like he's still giving it, and so I just, I love that he has this little crisis of like, all right, I'll give this all up. But when Aang comes to him and he's still stuck there, the sarcasm gets him through, and he can't. He can't give that up. It's just, it is a part of him. And it helps reinforce who he is. Also, just the peak comedy gold of like, just please send someone, anyone to come help me. 
Just get me out of this. I'll give up anything. I'll be a better person, blah, blah. Someone comes along two seconds later. Yeah, I didn't mean any of that. Yeah, yeah, of course. The pure comedy gold. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, and I think also brilliant of Toph to point out, yeah, yeah, you moved the rock, but like, you probably should leave this to me <laughs> because you will squish him and he will die. <laughs> leave this to the professionals. Yeah, let's keep this pros only. You're You're still amateur, buddy. I think the only thing that could have made the Sokka in the whole see like the whole journey better mm-hmm. would be if at some point Fufu Cuddly Poops like crawled onto his head and took a nap on him. Fufu Cuddly Poops did crawl onto his head, but at another point I want to well, bring like he out should lie that... down and nap, like curl ah. up into a ball, like you know, a little doggy donut. Another thing I want to point out is as he's saying, I'll give up sarcasm, I'll give up meat. He also loses his boomerang. Boomerang does not come like not loses his boomerang, but he tosses boomerang and he can't rely on boomerang. So he can't even be boomerang guy in this moment. I mean, boomerang does come back and it hits him promptly on the head. Boomerang bonks him. Mm, yes. He really but gets again, a taste of his own medicine. It Again, like when he when he originally tosses it, though, it just kind of falls flat. It doesn't come back to him. And so yeah. he does feel like, again, it's another loss of identity for him of like, damn, my boomerang's not helping me. My sarcasm's not helping me. My love of meat got me into this situation. What do I have left? And then his ponytail goes away. And I just like... I don't know. I really felt that. I do think it's been he, a week. <laughs> I do think he handles this particular identity crisis better than his last one. Yes, I very much agree. And I think maybe it's because he's been having so many that he's at least handling this one better. So I wonder if on the next one, how he'll handle it. Yeah, like, you know, we've we've watched him go through this journey of defining himself against certain things yes i'm i'm you know this guy i'm that guy but like he i think he's working towards the point of i am yeah and i think next episode is another episode where he says i am this guy if i'm remembering correctly he does identify himself again so we might get another suck identity crisis next episode you like that jingle i'm loving it that's what i'm doing that's it keeping it thank you for listening to the pie show if you liked what you heard please leave us a review on apple podcasts you can find our show notes at the show.fm slash 29 if you'd like to reach us you can send us a tweet at the pie show or email us at the pie show podcast at gmail.com and we'll we'll have uh, email feedback next episode because we did get an email, but I wanna I wanna go through it a little bit more because we did have recent feedback. Yeah, we've had a bit of a weird uh, recording schedule these past yeah. couple episodes, um, but we we have your feedback. We appreciate your feedback, and we'll probably do like a feedback extravaganza. Yeah. Next episode, where we'll yeah. we'll go through a bunch of it. So yeah, thank you, and please keep writing in, everyone, because we really do appreciate it. We love it. Send us your essays. Technically, strictly speaking, punishment is positive reinforcement. Definitionally. No. Yes. What? Yes. You want me to get the book? I'll get the book. Also, again, I think. Toph's recollection of this episode entirely shows, yeah, no, she didn't listen to Katara. She absolutely, she's like, I threw rocks at him. He was whiny. Sokka Maybe got she didn't stuck in a think rock. she was listening to Katara, but like, I do genuinely think that had Katara not said what she did, that Toph might not have responded to Aang in the way that she did in the moment that she did when she got through to him. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs>
And yes, punishment is positive reinforcement because you're reinforcing a behavior at the moment of its occurrence. Punishment is so not negative reinforcement. So what's negative reinforcement? Tell me. Give me a second. Let me get the book. Deciding to take an antacid before you indulge in a spicy meal is an example of negative reinforcement. You engage in an action in order to avoid a negative result. One of the best ways to remember negative reinforcement is to think of it as something being subtracted from the situation. Response or behavior is strengthened by stopping, removing, or avoiding a negative outcome or aversive stimulus. I think we're getting too granular on this as well. Maybe this is a spirit world thing. I'm telling you, punishment is positive reinforcement. It's like stuck out. Positive reinforcement reinforces what the child is doing right rather than concentrating on what the child is doing wrong. That's from familyeducation.com. Positive reinforcement training uses a reward. Treats, praise, toys, anything the dog finds for desired behaviors. <laughs> Giving a high five. Cheerful. Aims to increase a desired be- behavior by adding a favorable stimulus. Something being added. Involves the addition of a reinforcing stimulus following a behavior that makes it more likely that the behavior will occur in the future. So I guess I could see how punishment... I could see how punishment would be, but uh, let's see. Positive reinforcement can also constraint and undesirable behaviors. No, it's a lot of rewards. It's a reward system is what a lot of these are saying. But, but yeah, positive reinforcement doesn't have to be like the big showy thing that everyone thinks. Mm-hmm. A simple acknowledgement, it is a weak positive reinforcement, but it is a positive reinforcement. But so I'm looking again, a few more are saying that, uh, let's see, there is positive punishment is an attempt to influence behavior by adding something unpleasant. So there's positive punishment and negative punishment, and there's positive reinforcement and negative reinforcement. Okay, I'm with you. So my therapist explained it differently, but I understand. Okay, so like, it's kind of like there's four on a grid type of thing. Yeah. Positive means you're adding something and negative means you're taking something away. But with Reinfo- that grid. Reinforcement means you are increasing a behavior. Punishment means you are decreasing a behavior. So there can be positive punishment. Yes. Which I would understand maybe that's what Toph is doing, but I don't think it's positive reinforcement. But on that grid, acknowledging you, you did it, now do it here. You did it there, now do it here is reinforcement. Yes. So she is using positive reinforcement. No, I'm not going to agree with that. Because you don't view it as like, that's not what you think of as positive reinforcement, but definitionally it is. But de- And again, I think when I'm looking at this, I'm thinking it might be more positive punishment because she instead keeps pushing him. She punishes him to get the desired result. She punishes him to get the desired result. The second she gets the desired result, she reinforces that. And then she goes straight back into punishment. I don't think she reinforces. She makes fun of him. I don't think the clapping is sincere. She makes fun of him. And then then she goes to smash the thing with the walnut again. I think this is, I think this is positive punishment. Definitely. I think the walnut is punishment. I think the clapping is reinforcement. And I think <sighs> here's the thing. I think making I think fun of fact, him is positive punishment. I think the fact that the reinforcement is so laser focused and in a sea of punishment, it makes it that much more potent. Okay. Okay. I'm, I don't agree with you, but I'll say okay. That's all I wanted. I'll say okay. But again, I, 
reading this, I'm more inclined. Again, I think you're reading the clapping as sincere and I'm reading the clapping as making fun of him and pushing him more. I don't think it is reinforcing. I think she's pushing his buttons again. She's like, cool, Sokka almost died. That's what it took? Whatever. I think the clapping is like for that split moment, it's sincere. I don't agree. Just like when you said you did it, that was sincere. It was surrounded by a bunch of shit that wasn't, but I did do it, and you acknowledge that. Wasn't giving you a cookie. No, you weren't. I actually, I think I even pointed out that, like, that's still a mess. Do some laundry. You smell. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which would be negative reinforcement. But you did all of that after acknowledging. But you did all of that after acknowledging that I did the thing. You started. You still acknowledged it. I think it was more negative reinforcement, but... Sometimes acknowledgement is enough. Okay. All right. All right. You're not going to get me to agree on this. You keep trying. I'm not trying to get you to agree on it. (laughs) This is the one where you'll walk away from this and be like, I can't believe Kelly. (laughs) You see the character the way you see the character. Mm -hmm. And with this character, I'm never going to change your mind. You're never going to see her any other way. I think I will be able to see different things about her. I truly do, because Mm -hmm. I feel like I discovered things about her in the last episode, The Chase. Um, and even in the blind bandit, but I think I have a bit more, uh, a bit more, um, I don't want to say knowledge cause that's not, that's not, it's not that I think I have a bit more of the patterns of how she works because I've seen it multiple times. I think I I'm more familiar with the beats of her story. Maybe what I'm actually thinking is that this is a thing that you don't want to see. And so I'm never going to be able to make you see something you don't want to see. That might be true as well. And I will agree to that. That I will agree with you on. Like, I, I genuinely think that's what I'm fighting against here. Like, you, regardless of whether or not you can see it, you don't want to. And so you won't. Yeah. And, like, yeah. I can't I can't argue yeah. against that. There's nothing I can do. Yep. Yep. Nope. I've, I will agree with you on that. 